0: Well, we have been in a series for the last several weeks on the book of Colossians. We're calling this series Above All Else. And in this series, we're talking about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus and what happens in us when we put him above all else in our lives. And today we are bringing this series to a close. And to do that, I want to talk about our relationships and what our relationships can look like When we place Jesus Christ as the head of our lives, before we get into it, let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word today. Father, we love you, and God, we're just so thankful and so appreciative for your presence that's in this room right now. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. Now, God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, God. It wouldn't be my words. It would be your word speaking to us and God, I pray that it would, it would have legs to it, God. It would cause us to become doers of the word. I pray for transformation to take place today in our hearts. And we give you thanks and praise for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've worked through almost the entire book of Colossians in this series. We couldn't get to everything. There were things that I had to leave out, just didn't have time to get to it. But you'll recall in Colossians chapter 1, Paul primarily writes to us to tell us who Jesus really is. He tells us that he is the supreme being above everything else in all creation. Remember, Paul told us that he was the firstborn of all creation and that, that nothing that has been made was made without him and that everything that has been made has been made for him and his purposes and his glory. And yet, th- that he's the king of the universe, but beyond that, he wants to be the king of our hearts. And then in chapter 2, Paul takes time to refute what theologians called the Colossian heresy. It was a false gospel being taught by false teachers in the city of Colossae about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul exposed the futility of their thinking and their arguments. Uh, And then he delivered to them what the true gospel of Jesus Christ is in Colossians chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, Paul switches gears a little bit and he moves from a theological tone to a practical one. And he makes the case that if Christ is truly above all else in your belief system, it should show up in your daily living and in your decision making. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells us how Christ should be above all else in our thinking patterns, telling us that our minds should be set on things above where Christ is. He also tells us that Christ should be above in our behavior patterns patterns. And uh, my father-in-law, Roger, uh, did an incredible job preaching that text last week. It was awesome. Yeah, give it up for him. We're so glad to have him in town. And if you missed that, it is online. It's on our podcast and on our YouTube channel. I'd love for you to check that out. But listen, after Paul writes to to tell us who Jesus Christ really is as the Son of God, and then he exhorts us how to live for him on a personal level, he then moves on in Colossians 3 and Colossians 4 and begins talking to us about our relationships More specifically, what our relationships should look like when we are living with Christ above all else. And let me just say that, in my opinion, this is where the rubber really meets the road. I love that you can't say the word relationship without mentioning the word real. And see, your relationships are often where the real you is revealed. I had a spiritual mentor when I was in college, a man by the name of Dr. Horton and uh, he taught us, he, he just taught us how to live for God, how to use the gifts that God has given us. He, he was a wonderful mentor of both Carmen and I, and he used to tell us this all the time. He said, God cares more about how you treat people than he does your ministry. That matters to God. It's so true. How you are in relation to others says a great deal about who you are as a person and who really is on the throne in your heart. And if Jesus really is the king of your heart, it will show up, listen, in how you interact with other people, it will show up in your relationships. And in the remaining portion of this letter of Colossians, Paul shows us what it looks like when Christ is placed above all else in our relationships. And that's what I really want to break down for us today. Paul gives us four categories of relationships beginning in Colossians chapter 3 that I want us to look at together today. And here's the first category. He focuses on the relationships that we have with one another within the church. Okay, remember, he wrote this letter. He's talking to believers in Jesus. And so he wants to take time now to talk about our relationships with one another first. Look at it in Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 with me. Relationships in the church. That's what Paul says. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Look at verse 15. It says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, let me just say before we jump into this, I'm 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 going to deal with this with these uh, this passage of scripture we just read, but I'm not going to deal with it exhaustively, and that's really hard for me to do. I'm one of these guys I like to just just wring it out for everything there, but I've got a lot to cover. It's like. What's that old song? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So we're going to move through this quick. But but I am going to bring some stuff out that I think is important for us to see today. But as we talk through this, I want you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I want you to let the Holy Spirit reveal some things to you. I, I want us to take an honest inventory of how we are living in relationships with others as we talk about this. I want you to do some self-reflection and some self-discovery, okay? That means that as we're talking about this, don't be looking at your neighbor, all right? Don't be elbowing your spouse and be like, I hope you're listening to him. I hope you're getting this. You know, think about yourself today, all right? But this is what a Christian relationship should look like with others when Christ is the head of our lives. Number one, there should be patience with one another. Now, look, Paul comes right out of the gate swinging here because this is a hard one. You know what I'm saying? Don't ever pray for patience, by the way. You know that, right? You don't ever pray for patience. That's not a good prayer to pray. God will just wreck your life if you do that. But he said in verse 13, he said, bear with one another. What is that? That's patience. And let me say, when you have to say it like that, bear with one another, that means it's not the easiest thing to do, amen? But when it comes to relationships with others within the church, listen, he didn't say bail out on each other. He didn't say give up on it, just go somewhere else, just find some new friends. What did he say? He said bear with one another. That's what we do when Christ is above all else in our lives and in our relationships. It comes out through our patience that we have for one another as we work through our stuff or we work through relational conflict. And then he adds forgiveness to it. He said it doesn't get easier. He said, forgive others as the Lord has forgiven you. Listen, the way that Jesus treats us in relationship with him is the benchmark for how we should treat everybody else in our lives. And this forgiveness thing, this is a big deal to Jesus. In fact, this is what he said about it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, he said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That's good news. But watch verse 15. He says, if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It doesn't get much more clear than that. If you and I want to receive forgiveness from God, and I know I do, I need it, I don't know about you, but I need his forgiveness. If we want to be recipients of his forgiveness, we've got to be willing to offer forgiveness to others. We ought to make it a priority to forgive people quickly because we shouldn't expect to receive anything from God that we're not willing to give to somebody else. And I like the way Paul said this in the text because he said, forgive If you have a grievance against someone, now listen to me, in any kind of relationship, it doesn't matter what kind, in the church, outside the church, with your best friend in life, in your marriage, in your relationships with other family members, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship we're talking about, there are going to be times when you get your feelings hurt. There are going to be times in any kind of relationship when you feel betrayed, when you feel used, when you feel manipulated, when you feel like somebody just has not has has just not treated you fairly. There are going to be times when you have a legitimate grievance against someone. Paul doesn't pretend that that doesn't happen in the relationships within the church. He acknowledges that there is a reality that it will happen. Why? Because people are messy. Even redeemed people, even people that love God are messy, and relationships are complicated no matter what kind of relationship it is. So he doesn't pretend that grievances aren't going to happen. He says when they do happen, this is how you handle them. You bear with one another. You don't bell out on each other. You bear with one another, and you forgive each other like Christ has forgiven you. You say, pastor, well, that's really hard to do. It sure is. And that's why Paul said what he did next in verse 14. Look at it again. He said, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And listen, in my opinion, this is the key to all of it. It's this word love. In order to bear with one another and forgive each other when legitimate grievances come up, you got to wear love. You got to put it on like a garment. You have to choose to love first and foremost because patience with people and forgiveness of people who have who has hurt you, they are byproducts of walking in divine love. Let me show you in scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8, this is what the scripture says. It says, "Above all, love each other deeply." Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. "Above all, love one another deeply." Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins, This quote that Peter uses actually originates in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And in the Hebrew, the word for covers there is almost always translated to forgive. Love gives you the power and the ability to forgive a multitude of sins. Listen, it is not hard to walk in forgiveness when you're walking in love, but it's nearly impossible to forgive people who hurt you when you're not walking in the love of the Spirit of God. And when Jesus is above all else, listen to this, the embodiment of perfect love is living on the throne of your heart. When he's there above all else, when he is there and you've, you've put him above all, uh, all of your feelings and emotions, listen, when Christ, when you've lifted him up above all your past wounds and hurts above your anxieties and fears that you may carry. When he is above all else, he makes forgiveness possible for you and me because his divine love is flowing in. And listen, his his love is never described as as a pond. It is described as a river. So that means that if it flows in, it's going to find an outlet to flow out. If you are receiving divine love, divine love is what you're going to be able to give to those around you. Love allows us to forgive, and according to Paul in verse 14, love is the bond that creates unity among the people of God, which is the next thing he says should be present within our relationships within the church. There should be a spirit of unity, and not just unity, but Paul adds this word perfect to it. It's perfect unity. Now, I think it's worth noting here that this is one word in the Greek. Perfect unity here is the word teleotitas, Taleotitas, You should be impressed. That's a hard one. Teleotitas. Okay, that's a compound word. And the first part of that word can be translated complete or perfect. But listen to this, it can also be translated maturity. And here's the thing that I feel like the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I think more often than not in our relationships, when there is a spirit of disunity, it is created and fostered by immaturity more than anything else. People that walk around always mad at somebody, always mad about something, always bitter, always stirring up conflict, gossiping, creating strife. What is that? That is a maturity issue. And Paul actually wrote to us about this in many letters to the people of God. He said, I am praying that you will come into maturity in Christ. What's he talking about? I'm praying that you will leave your childish thinking and your childish behaviors behind and come into spiritual adulthood and start living the life of Jesus Christ. Start living like him. If that's describing you, if if, if you're if you're just kind of one of these people that's just always bitter and always angry and always create always got an axe to grind. Come on, always always got something uh, that that's just not it's just not beneficial to talk about. But man, you're going to talk about it. If that's you, listen. This is how you deal with that once and for all. You need to place Jesus at the head of your life, and you need to begin living according to His Word, and not your feelings, not your emotions, not your thoughts. Those are the things that James said in James chapter four, verse one. Watch this. They battle within you, but they don't stay there. They manifest outwardly, causing fights and quarrels among you. So this is how you deal with it. You deal with your old way of thinking and acting, and you say, I'm going to start to live according to the word of Jesus Christ. And I want you to be honest with yourself today. How are you doing with this church? God wants to strengthen your relationships with people. He wants to strengthen the relationships you have with the people around you because he wants you to live a full life and relationships should be life-giving for you. So Paul mentions here patience, forgiveness, love, unity as highlights of a relationship where Christ is the head. And then look at verse 15. He goes on. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Paul says in your relationships with others in the body of Christ, he says, peace should rule. Peace, not conflict, not chaos, not confusion, not disorder or discord. He says peace should rule. The word for rule here in the Greek is the same word to describe an arbiter or an official uh, of a sports match. And so he says when it comes to relationships, listen to this. Peace is the referee. Let the peace of Christ, let the prince of peace rule over your heart. The Bible says as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So when a foul has been committed, do what you need to do to quickly find the path to peace. When a penalty has been perpetrated, come together in a huddle of peace. When someone throws a ball at you and knocks off your glasses, do not, which has happened to me many times, I'm wearing contacts today if you don't know, do not respond in kind. Have you ever been playing basketball with somebody and they get so mad they just chunk the ball right at your face? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. Back in the yard, man. No. Don't respond like that. Don't take the ball and throw it back at them. Respond in peace. Paul says, let peace rule in your relationships with others. What's he saying? Pursue peace above all else. And peace should rule in your relationship when the Prince of Peace is ruling over your heart. He adds in verse 15, be thankful. This is the Greek word toy. You toy. you probably heard that word "caris" in there, which is the Greek word for grace. And here, what Paul's using in, in the, what he's using this word here in context, he's saying when it comes to relationships with others within the church, he's saying you need to be thankful. You need to live thankfully because thankful people treat others differently than people who are still choosing to hang on to bitterness and anger. And some of you, just honestly, you need to let Jesus heal the hurt you've been carrying for all these years. That's what he wants to do. You need to let Jesus heal your heart. Otherwise, it's going to continue to sabotage the relationships that God keeps bringing into your life. Now, let me say, look, I know relational hurt is real, and I know it's painful. I've experienced it. I've been lied to by a close friend. I've been betrayed. I've been talked about behind my back. I've had people accuse me of things that just was not true. It's hurtful. Relational conflict hurts. And the closer you are to somebody, guess what? The more it's going to hurt if there's relational conflict. But God wants you to be healed. Listen, because hurt people hurt people and healed people heal people. And God wants you to be a proponent of his healing on the earth. He wants you to be a conduit of his grace to others. So you've got to let God do a work of healing in your own heart if you're going to live that way. But the level of thankfulness you live with actually reveals a lot about the grace you've received and the grace you're willing to extend to others. How are you doing this today? I want you to be honest with yourself and the Lord today. You don't have to talk to me about it. Just talk to God about it in your own heart right now. Look at Colossians 3.16. He keeps going. In your relationships with other believers, Paul says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. That word message here in the original language is the word logos, which means the spoken word. Paul's saying, let the gospel of Christ, let the word of God dwell. That word dwell means to be at home in. So Paul says, let it dwell in your heart and in your mind, but not just in you, let it dwell among you as well. Let it dwell amidst the relationships you have with others. May the word of Christ feel at home and not assaulted in your conversations with other people. May his word permeate the content that is spoken at your coffee meeting. May it it dominate what's said at your small group discussion. May it dominate your dinner with friends and your social media posts. Come on, somebody. It's the word of Christ. That's what Paul's getting at. What is Christ doing in and through you through the power of his word? You can use that then to encourage one another. And that's what Paul is saying here. Relationships among the people of God should be dominated by the word of Christ. It's the word of Christ, he says, that we use to teach one another. Some of the best teaching moments I've ever experienced in my life were not sitting in a pew listening to a pastor. It was sitting across a table from somebody who was just talking about what God had done in their life. And I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm receiving from them, sharing the word of Christ that is so rich and alive within them. That's how we teach one another. It's through the word of Christ. He also says, admonish one another. Admonish means to counsel. It means to give advice or to caution. Listen to me. Don't give advice or counsel to someone based on your own opinions. Give them the word of God. There is wisdom in the word of God. Also in verse 16, Paul says in our relationships with one another, when Jesus is the head above all else, he says there's going to be singing. There's going to be lots of singing. And this is where I'm just going to give a shameful plug for that Christmas, gram. You need to do it. Because the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. You might wonder, well, why do we sing in the house of God? This is why. It's because we want Christ to dwell in this house. We, When we worship and praise him, what we're doing is, is we are inviting him to come and take his seat on the throne of this house above all else. And when we sing to God, when we worship, when we make music with our hearts to God, we create an environment in this room and in our hearts, watch this, where his word is going to find a place to dwell in each and every one of us. That's why we sing before we preach. It's because we want to create a dwelling place for the word of God to land hallelujah and do something in our hearts lastly paul adds in verse 17 and whatever you do whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him and this verse it really sums it all up in your interactions with one another whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the lord jesus do it as worship and service unto him do it for his glory and let me just say this if you do that consistently on a daily basis You're not going to have to worry about the quality of your friendships. You're not going to have to worry about the number of friends that you have and the quality of relationships that you have with your friends. Listen, you are going to be the most sought-out person in every sphere of your life because everything you are doing, you're doing it unto the Lord, and he is blessing and ministering and inspiring and encouraging others through your presence in their life. You don't have to work so hard to find friends when you just work so hard to keep Christ lifted up above all else in your life. What does it look like when he's exalted in our relationships? This is what it looks like. It's tangible and practical. And again, God has designed our relationships with one another to be life-giving. He wants us to live this way. And notice just real quick before we move on how often Paul mentions this idea of thanksgiving. It's three times in this passage that he brings it out. He says, Be thankful in verse 15. He says, Have gratitude in verse 16. He says, In verse 17, give thanks. Listen, this is an attitude you can have regardless of how you feel or regardless of the circumstances you're dealing with. You can choose to be thankful, and that choice right there, that choice alone has the power to positively affect everything else around you. It is a choice you can make that yields powerful results. We're coming off of Thanksgiving week, and I know I said last week in jest, by the way, that Thanksgiving is a day and Christmas is a season, but, but listen to me, for real, for a Christian who has placed Jesus at the head of our lives, above all else, a spirit of thanksgiving, should be a daily reality for every single one of us. We should live like the most thankful people on the planet. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. And if you ever if you ever get to the place where you, you've replaced thankfulness with bitterness and you're angry and you're mad and you're carrying this and you don't know why, just start thinking about the grace of God. Just start thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Just thinking about who you used to be and who you are today. And it will cause you to give praise and thanks to God the Father and live with a true attitude of gratitude. Like I told you, A couple of weeks ago, when you live with that attitude of gratitude, it's like a magnet that attracts abundance in your life. Thankfulness goes a long way. Let thankfulness overflow in your heart in relationships with one another. Paul's showing us practically what it looks like in our relationships when we place Christ above all else. First, he deals with relationships within the church, and then he moves on to relationships in the home. Relationships in the home. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, wives, I love how just, there's no transition. He's just right on it. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The first relationship in the home he deals with is the marriage relationship. God's design for your marriage is for Christ to be over- All of it, above all else in your marriage. Paul is trying to give us an idea practically of what that should look like when Christ is is above all else. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Okay, so marriage is a good idea if for no other reason it increases your chance of survival. Okay, so that's good. But then the writer goes on and he has this he says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Let me ask you today, what is the third strand in a marriage? It is God. It is the person of Jesus Christ who is at home in your home. See, when he's in the middle of your marriage above all else, that marriage is going to be healthy. It's going to be strong. Look at the words of the scripture. It says it's not going to be easily broken broken. In a day and age when 50% of all marriages end in divorce, this is the most powerful way that we can divorce-proof our homes. It is to make sure that God is lifted up in the middle of it all as the third strand, placing him above all else in our relationship. And watch this. As, As you lift him up above all else, as you both, both spouses, gravitate towards him, At the center of your relationship, look what's happening. You're moving closer and closer to one another as well. But when he is not in the middle, when he is not the head, you are moving away from one another unless you work really, really, really hard. So as you move closer and closer to Jesus, you're moving closer to one another. And here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul's trying to give us an idea of what it looks like when Christ is above all else in our marriage. And he first says, and he says, first of all, when Christ is leading the way, the wife will live in submission to her husband. Now, let me just, before you start throwing things at me, number one, I'm just giving you what the Word of God says, okay? And number two, I'm just going to tell you, we don't have time to dig this out today like I want to, all right? You, you, and, and, and I think I'll probably do this, since I'm just wetting your appetite for it, in our next marriage series. I'm going to deal with this. But listen, this concept is difficult for us to understand, and I want to acknowledge that. It's difficult for us to understand because we don't fully understand the cultural implications and the cultural scenarios in which Paul was writing this. And I think we naturally have a tendency, all of us do, in America, to balk at the idea of submission to anything or anyone. At least I do. When the government's like, let me just stop right there. Just back it up, Brian. There's no reason to get into that. (laughs) But we misunderstand this idea of submission because we really don't understand it in the Word of God. And these words to submit in the text... They're difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but you need to know two things. Again, one, there's a cultural context to Paul's writing this. That's important for you to understand, and I'm, I encourage you to study that out for yourself. But secondly, you need to understand the language and what the word Paul uses here really means in context. The word written to, to wives here that's translated to submit is the word tasso in the Greek. Hupo means under, tasso means order. And this is the same Greek word in the scripture that's used to describe Jesus' posture towards his earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, when he was growing up under their roof. In Luke chapter 2, ta- hupotasso was his attitude. And his posture towards them, watch this, it was not forced on him, it was his decision. It was the posture that he willfully and willingly took according to the scripture, if you read it. Certainly he did not take that because he thought himself as being less important uh, as them. He was the son of God, but it was because that was the posture of honor And order in the home in which he was placed. And that's what God's word is saying to us here. Submission is taking a posture of honor towards your spouse. Hupotasso is the same Greek word used in Romans 13 when it talks about our posture towards our elected officials and our governing authorities. To submit to the leadership of someone else, listen, is a posture of honor. Paul says it's a posture of the heart that is fitting unto the Lord when we take it on in our homes. Now, let me say this. Wives, this is what, what Paul is describing here. This is submission not to, not to manhood. This is submission to spiritual leadership. And so taking this posture assumes that the husband is providing spiritual leadership to his family, which is our calling in the Lord, men. So, so watch, we don't get to demand submission as a blanket rule, especially when we refuse to lead our families. Oh, you better pull your toes in because we're going there. But, but when, when, men, when we provide strong and stable leadership to our family, listen, submission is a natural response to that. It comes from a natural place of willfulness and joy, not compulsion or fear, because we are leading our families well. You should never use this verse or any other verse in the Bible as threatening language towards your spouse. You should just lead well and trust that she's going to follow you as you follow after God and his word. Amen. Amen. That's good preaching. And the wives are not the only ones that Paul is, going, is talking to here in Colossians chapter 3. He talks to the husbands as well in verse 19. Look at it again. He says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is also speaking, listen to husbands, about the posture that we take in marriage towards our wives. When Christ is the head, our posture should be for our wives. It should be towards them. It is love towards them. And I think it's worth noting that the Greek word here for love is not romantic love like you might think of in marriage. It's not friendly love. It is divine love. It's the Greek word agape. It's the love that comes down from heaven and flows through you. Paul really sheds more light on this when he deals with this same topic in the book of Ephesians when he says that the love a husband should have for his wife, is it should imitate the love that Christ has for his church, one in which he willfully joyfully gives himself up for her. He lays down his life for her well-being. Scripture says greater love hath no man than this that he would lay down his life. It says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising its shame. That is the calling on husbands in the house towards our wives. It is a posture of relationship towards them. It is one of self-sacrificial love. It's one that puts the needs of the household above our own needs. It is one listen that finds the greatest joy in sacrifice this is how we honor our wives amen. come on men say amen. amen this is this is god i definitely need to do a marriage series i can see it now no but listen to me this is this is what i want you to get this is god's heart for your marriage it is one of mutual Honor, mutual love, and mutual respect. And it takes work on both of our parts. It takes intentional focus and purpose. But when you place Christ at the head of your life above all else, it's going to show up in your relationships. It's going to show up in your marriage. It's going to show up in how you treat your spouse and how you relate to them. Now, Paul's going to add another relationship in the home and where Christ should be above all else. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to move to parents and children. Look at it. He says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Carmen, where are our kids at? They need to hear this. This is, this is so important. They need to be hearing this message. I'm just kidding. Our kids are great, but no, they really do need to hear this. He goes on in verse 21. He says, fathers... Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I love how Paul calls out the dads there. You know, he knows mom's going to baby them and dads need, you know, make them a little bit tough here without overdoing it. Don't embitter your children. What does it look like when Christ is above all in the relationships within your home? First, he's going to talk to the children. and He says, you obey your parents in everything. Why? Because this is behavior that is pleasing unto the Lord. So let me talk to the kids uh, and and the teens and the 27-year-olds that are still living at home just real quick. This is, how, this is how you honor God in your life. This is how you live when Christ is the head. You don't argue with your parents. You don't act like you know better. When you know good and well that you don't know anything, come on, you don't talk back and you don't give attitude. You just choose to simply say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, and obey. When you obey, you're placing Christ above all else in your heart. And parents, he talks to us too. He doesn't just pick on the kids. He says, when Christ is above all else in your hearts, watch this. You won't cause your children to become discouraged by the way you speak to them or treat them. Come on, this is so important for us today. This is what he's talking about. If you look at that, the Greek wording Paul uses there means that you speak to your children in a way that causes them to lose spirit. You're talking down to them. In my observation, lots of parents in this day and age talk down to their kids And I don't think they fully realize it, but their words are wounding to their hearts. And you need to know, listen, that your words have immense power, especially with your children. In fact, the Bible says that you're, you're the, the, it says the power of life and death is in the tongue and you can use your words to bless or you can use your words to curse. And Paul is addressing the parents here and he's saying when you talk down to your kids, that is not fitting behavior unto the Lord. We must discipline, we must bring correction when necessary, but we, so, we should also encourage them and make sure our kids know that we believe in them and we are for them. If nobody else is for them on the planet, we are for them as their parents. Come on, they're getting enough discouragement and enough nonsense at school every day. Let's not join in that course and add to it. Let's speak a good word to them. Let's lift them up and encourage them. I love This is what Paul's getting at. It's so practical, but he's talking about, hey, when Christ is above all else, this is what it looks like in your relationships with others. It's going to show up in your relationships in the home. And then in verse 22, Paul brings on another type of relationship that we're going to talk about. We're going to, we're going to call this one relationships in the workplace. And I'm going to read it, then I'll explain it to you. Relationships in the workplace. Look at it, Colossians 3.22. It says, slaves, some of you feel like slaves in your workplace. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Now look at Colossians 4.1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So obviously Paul is writing here to masters and slaves. And again, we don't have time to exhaustively deal with the cultural implications or significance of Paul's view towards slavery in this passage. But let me say to you, Paul is not advocating for slavery anywhere here in this passage. You don't see that in the text. You don't see it anywhere in his writings. He's not condoning slavery as a practice in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I believe if you really study this passage out and its companion book that Paul wrote called Philemon, it's hard not to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit behind behind Paul's words and his displeasure with slavery as a practice in any way, shape, or form among the people of God. Why? Because Jesus said in his own words, I came to set people free. I came to take people that were in bondage and bring them out. So how can you, if you're following after that same Jesus Christ, put people in bondage? It does not work. And so Paul points that out actually in the book of Philemon. You should read it. In a, very, in a very crafty, creative way, because he was not trying to start a social upheaval. And again, I don't, I don't have time to get into all that, but I'm just telling you, if, if you're interested in that, study it out. It's really interesting to see how Paul wrote about this. But what Paul is doing here primarily in the context of relationship is he is challenging the heart and motivation of the worker and the one overseeing the work being done. So again, a good application for us is in the the context of employee employer relationships. So what does it look like when Christ is above all else in your work life and in your work relationships? First of all, Paul says, it's doing work in obedience to the task you've been assigned. Watch this, not doing your own thing your own way, but doing the right things the right way based on the job you've been hired to do, based on the job you've been assigned. Secondly, it is doing it with sincerity of heart. So it is putting your heart into all that you do. It is doing your best work with consistency, watch this, regardless of who may be there that day watching you or what kind of accolades you may receive or may not receive from the work that you do. So let me ask you today, have you ever worked with someone who turned it on and really worked hard only when the supervisor showed up? Don't you just hate those guys? Oh, It's like you see them, they're over there drinking their coffee, and they're just like, ha-ha, and then they see the boss, and they're like, yeah, so uh, go ahead and get that TPS report to me. Stat. You know, it's like we know what you're doing, man. We know what you're up to. Yeah, Paul is saying don't do that. Literally, this is what he's saying. Christians don't do that. He says Christians, for, for us, our work should always be hard work. It should be done well, and it should be done with consistency. And the reason for that, Paul says, is because we're doing work unto the Lord. And when the work is for the Lord, we don't need human accolades to make us more productive because the scripture says that the Lord sees what is done in secret when no one else is watching and it says that he himself rewards what is done in secret. So you can receive a reward from man or you can receive a reward from God. And Paul says, if you get ignored and you get overlooked by man, don't worry. God shows no favoritism. He sees what you've done and he's gonna reward you. What's been done in secret will be rewarded openly by God himself. And on the other side of this, in Colossians chapter four, verse one, Paul says of masters or employers, those overseeing the work being done, he says, be fair and equitable to your workers, provide what is needed by, uh, by your employees, give clear instruction, give resources needed to do a good job. He's basically saying, treat people right. And I love this. He adds, don't forget, you have a master in heaven as well. You think you're a master overseeing the work that your workers are doing. You've got a master overseeing the conduct of your life as well. So Paul gives us some application for our work life and our work relationships. He begins with relationships in the church. He moves to relationships in the home. Then he talks about relationships in the workplace. And finally, Paul's going to speak about our relationships with people outside the church, with unbelievers. What should that look like? He gets into that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Look at it. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. points here in these verses on what should highlight a relationship that we have as believers with unbelievers. And in the first one, he says this, we should be praying for them with persistence. We should be praying for them with persistence. He says in verse two, to devote yourselves to prayer. In the Greek, the wording there is translated, give constant attention to it. Pray faithfully and persistently. In the context of relationships with people who are living far from God, listen, you should always have at least one person who is unsaved on your prayer list that you are praying for daily. There should be at least one person on your prayer list, at least one that you know is not living for Jesus and you are praying for God to save them. It could be that coworker that doesn't know the Lord. It could be that longtime friend that's never understood why you go to church and why you love God like you do. It could be your spouse or your child or your parent or some other family member, perhaps a neighbor who's unsaved. No matter who it is, there should always be at least one person that you are interceding for and asking Jesus to save. That, that should be the, the cry of every single one of us. Listen, we need to get passionate again in the church about seeing souls saved. We need to get more excited about seeing the people that are far from God coming into faith in Jesus Christ than anything else. It, it, it is the mission that God has given us through Jesus Christ is to go and, and disciple the nations. It is to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus said himself, he said, "'I came to seek and save the lost.'" When did we become a church that is more concerned about doing fun things inside the house than going outside the house and telling people about the love of God? We need to get excited again about helping people come to faith in Jesus. Paul said we need to pray for them with persistence. And he adds To this pray devotedly for them, he adds the word watchfully, which just means to be alert. So listen, this is what he's saying. Stay watchful for opportunities to pray for others. Listen to what the Spirit is saying as you pray. How is he leading you to pray for somebody? Paul also adds the word thankfully here in verse 2. And I'm just going to tell you, I believe something powerful happens when we begin to pray with thanksgiving. What is that? That is thanking God for answers to prayer before you see the answer come. That is praying with thanksgiving. It is praying thankfully. Praying thankfully will change the nature of your prayer life. And so Paul's talking about our relationship with unbelievers here. And the first thing he says we must do is we must pray for them with persistence. Pray and don't stop praying for lost people. And then look at verse 3. Paul has this and he says, And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I shall. As I should. So we're talking about praying for others, but here you look at this, and Paul is requesting prayer for himself here, not for unbelievers. But look at the context in which Paul's making this request. He says, Pray for us that doors might be opened for us to proclaim Christ faithfully. Pray that when we get the opportunity to share the gospel, we'll do it with clarity. So we should not only be praying persistently for unsaved people in our sphere of influence, we should also be praying for others to be anointed by God to reach people who are far from him as well. Paul is requesting prayer for himself here. But, but watch, watch this. Paul is, Paul is making this request. He is writing this letter from prison. And I'm just going to tell you, if it were me and I was, I was making a request while I was in prison, I would be making the request, somebody come get me out of here. You know, I'd be writing the letter saying, hey, someone go talk to the governor. Somebody, somebody get a meeting with the president. Get me out of here. You know, or somebody send me an ice cream cake with a knife in it and I'll break myself out. That's how you do it. Just noted, right? You know, someone get Epiphras and Tycheus and the boys from Colossae. Get a posse together and come down here and break me out of this joint. That's what I would be saying in the letter but that's not what Paul is asking for. He's in chains. He is in, he is in prison for preaching Jesus Christ and his request to the church is not do something to get me out. It is even while I'm here in prison, I want you to pray that I will have more and more opportunities, more and more open doors to share the gospel, the very thing that landed me in here in the first place. Pray that God will open up a door for me to keep sharing it. Pray that the thing that they've done to stop the spread of the gospel will actually become a platform for it to spread all the more. That's Paul's heart here. And so Paul says, when it comes to our relationships with people who are far from God, first of all, let's pray with persistence for them, but let's also pray with persistence for open doors for others to share their faith as well. Secondly, he adds in relationships with unbelievers, he says, make sure you walk wisely among them. So it's pray persistently and then it's walk wisely. Look at verse five. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. The word here where it says be in the verse is the Greek word peripateo. It means to walk. And Paul uses that as a metaphor often to describe the lifestyle that we live as believers. It's the way that we live. So he's saying, how should you live among outsiders? It is wisely. That word outsiders is describing people who are far from God. What are they outside of? They are outside of the sphere of God's grace. And so Paul says, not only do you need to pray for them, but you also need to make sure that when you are around them, You are living wisely. You are behaving wisely in front of them. Why is that important? It's because your lifestyle is either helping people come to faith in Jesus Christ or it's actually making it easier for them to stay away from him. I want you to think about that. Your lifestyle is either making people want to know Jesus or it is repelling them from wanting to know him. I heard a poem recently that I really liked, and I think it goes right along with what Paul's saying here in Colossians 4. The poem goes like this. It says, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Tell me, what is the gospel according to you? That's convicting. And that's what Paul is saying here. You got to walk wisely among People who are outside the faith, our behaviors, our attitudes, our life choices, what we say. They're either a witness for the reality of Jesus Christ as Lord or they are a witness against him. They're making a decision about him based on what they see and hear from you. So be wise in how you live. And then Paul adds this in verse 5. He says, make the most of every opportunity. And again, that's what it says in the NIV. But if you look at that in the Greek, it says redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. I love that. There's so much there. I don't, have, I don't have time to unpack that today. But this is what he's talking about. He's saying, don't just pray for open doors for me. Don't just pray for open doors for somebody else. But don't miss the open doors you yourself have in relationship with people that are far from God. When you see an open door, when you see that door open, redeem that moment in time. Make the most of it. Step into it and tell somebody about Jesus and the impact that he's made in your life. That word time for redeeming the time, listen, it's not Chronos time, it's Kairos. Chronos speaks of our clocks and calendars. It speaks of the, the time that's managed by your schedule or by your watch Kairos is speaking of divine moments in time. A Kairos moment is a moment in time that can happen in any time because it doesn't happen according to your watch. It happens according to the will of heaven, okay? And so he says, redeem those moments when heaven opens a divine door for you to tell somebody about Jesus. Step into that moment. Make the most of that moment. That's why the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we ought to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that we have. That moment can happen at any time time. And when a Kairos moment shows up in your relationship with someone who is far from God, step into that moment with courage and boldness and tell somebody about the hope you have in Jesus Christ. God wants people who are far from him to come to know him. And this happens most effectively when we have relationships with people who are unbelievers and they don't know Jesus. He goes on in verse six, and I'm closing with this. Paul also wants us to know how to speak to unbelievers. He said in relationship with unbelievers, you need to pray persistently, you need to walk wisely, and thirdly, speak graciously. Look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. There are two things that Paul points out when it comes to our conversations with unbelievers. Number one, it should be full of grace. The Greek word there is in carity, in carity. It's where we get the word charity in English. So what Paul is saying is when we talk with them, we should be thinking of them. We should be thinking about them. Watch this. We should be focused on their needs, not ours. We are meeting them at their point of need. We are meeting them where they are. That's what Jesus did when he spoke with the woman at the well. He didn't sit down and start unloading on her about how aggravated he was with Peter. And how awful it was that they were in Samaria or anything else. He met her at her point of need. He immediately turned his focus to her needs. The needs of her soul. The deep needs that she had carried that only God could heal. He began to speak to her need and minister to her heart. Listen, that means that before you open your mouth to speak, you need to listen to hear. You need to listen to hear. Don't just listen to what they're saying, but listen to hear. What what is their need? What are they struggling with? Where are they hurting? Where can you pray for them? That's what we're listening for. And when we speak to outsiders, our speech should be full of grace for them, not condemnation, not judgment, not ridicule, not shame. Grace. Listen, amazing things happen when we begin to speak grace into people's mess. The scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Listen, you are never going to lead anybody to Jesus by blasting them and telling them how awful they are. Paul says when Christ is seated above all else in your life, your conversations will be full of grace. And secondly, he says this. I love this. He says it should be seasoned with salt. When you are speaking with people who are far from God, you need to add a little salt to your words. What does Paul mean by this? Three things come to mind. First, salt adds flavor to things. So your words to people should be full of flavor. What does that mean? Your words should be attractive and tasteful. People are out there living mundane, ordinary, boring, saltless lives, lives full of pepper. They need a little salt. Come on. And so, listen, our life in Christ Jesus, when he is truly above all else, it's a lot of things, but it should never be boring. It's a life of adventure and spontaneity. It's a life being led by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. It's a life of open doors and answered prayers. It's a life of miracles. Come on, somebody. It's a life of God-sized dreams. It's a, it's an, I love telling people that I'm not from Colorado. And you know they're like, I'm not either. The military brought me here. What brought you here? And I'm like, we came to plant a church. And they're like, what? That's crazy. I love telling people about the adventure I'm living on because I'm living with Jesus. What is that? That's salt. I'm putting salt on my words. When we speak to people about our life in Christ, it should be full of, faith, of flavor and it should create a hunger for them to taste and experience that life as well. Secondly, salt is a preservative, meaning it helps food not decay. So our speech towards people who are far from God, listen, they should leave a lasting impression. It should give people hope. It should give something for them to remember your words towards people that are far from God should stick with them. I was thinking about my old football coach this week as I was preparing for this message. And uh, his name was Coach Richards. He was our defensive coordinator. Man, I hated that guy. He, was, he, was just, he just picked me out, and he'd be like, you don't know how to play. And, just, and I was like, why, are you, why do you always pick on me? I'm the best player. You know, I'm just kidding. But, but we, we just had it out. And, man, one day I, he just walked up on me telling somebody else about Jesus, and I knew he was standing there listening. And so I kind of directed my words to him. And he just went, huh. And he walked off. Okay. A couple weeks later, he came back up to me, tears in his eyes. And he said, Brian, I can't stop thinking about what you said the other day. And I helped my coach, my old mean jerk of a football coach come to faith in Jesus Christ. It was because what I said stayed with him. He couldn't sleep because those words were salty. And they were preserved in his mind and in his heart. Salt adds flavor. It preserves what is said. And thirdly, salt creates thirst. You know what I'm saying? You know, you you get you get thirst, you start eating something salty. We just did this at Thanksgiving, right? Like. You want, you want some fresh water. You want, you're, you're thirsty. And this is what Paul is saying. When you talk to people who are far from God and you add a little salt to your words, it should make them thirsty for more. It will make them thirsty for that living water, that water from that well that is not of this world. It is a well with water that will never run dry. When you have the opportunity to talk with unbelievers, make them thirsty. How do you do that? By pointing them to Jesus, by pointing them to Him. This is what Jesus said in John 7 37. He says, let anyone who is Thirsty come to me and drink, and I will give them rivers of living water that will flow from within them. It creates thirst. I want the band to come up and begin to play softly as we get ready to close today. You can add salt to your speech by pointing people to Jesus. How do you do that? I'm gonna tell you the most effective way to point people to Jesus it's not to quote a bunch of scripture at them. Trust me, you don't need to memorize a bunch of scriptures about Jesus and just unload on somebody. The best way to point people to Jesus is for you to tell them what Jesus has done in your life. It is the word of your testimony. It creates thirst. That's what the woman at the well did. She had a conversation with Jesus that stuck with her, that, that that made her thirsty for more. And what did she do? The Bible says she ran into town and she told everybody about what she had just experienced with the man at the well. She said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, but it wasn't with judgment. It wasn't with condemnation. It wasn't to create fear in her. It was, it was, it was to bring her to the place of grace, to bring her to the place of God's mercy for her. She said, I just met a man and he didn't point out my past like everybody else does. He told me about the future I still have. That's your testimony. And when you tell people that, it makes them thirsty for what you have. It makes them want to know the God who says, you know what? You're not condemned by your past. There's still hope for you. There's still a future for you. You haven't seen it yet, but, but I've got a plan for your life. Come on, stand with me all across the room. Paul said, be ready with an answer. What is the answer that your unsaved friends and family members need? It is always Jesus. He is the answer this world is looking for. It's always Jesus Christ. He's the answer for every broken heart and weary soul. He's the answer for every man or woman that feels lost and is searching for something. What are they searching for? They're searching for Jesus. They're searching for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who's loved them with an everlasting love, who's loved them so much he can't stop loving them. They need to know that that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not what they've seen before. It's what you're telling them. It is the love of God that was so far-reaching that it sent his son to the earth to die on a cross, not for his own sins, but for our sins, so that we can be saved. It's love like you'll never experience in all your life. We have no right to keep the good news about Jesus to ourselves. So always be ready to redeem the time. Always be ready to give an answer to tell people about the hope you have in Jesus. With every head bowed and every eye closed, this is how I want to end this message today. With nobody looking around, please. This is just a moment between you and God. Paul goes to such great lengths in this wonderful letter of Colossians to describe what the gospel really is, of who Jesus really is, that he's not just some man, that he's the son of God, and he didn't just live here an inconsequential life. He actually gave his life for the sins of the whole world. And all you have to do to receive what he's done for you is just believe in him. It's just to say yes to Jesus. There's nothing you have to do other than put your faith and hope in him. The Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and save And if you're here today and you would say, I've been living far from God. I've been kind of doing my own thing in life. And I felt it. I felt the weight of it. I felt the stress of it. I felt the weight of it in my relationships. I felt the tension. I felt the stress in my home. I felt it at work. I felt it in relationships with other people. I want a life that's better than what I've been living. I want the full life that Jesus came to give us. If that's you today and you say, I want Jesus, I want to make him the Lord of my life with nobody looking around, just between you and God, will you just lift up your hand right where you are and say, I want to make Jesus my Lord today. I want to give my heart to him. Come on, if that's you, don't be afraid. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you up to the front or anything like that. Just raise your hand and say, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me, Pastor. I want to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. You can put your hands down. The Bible tells us the way to be saved, and it's real simple. It's just to confess that he is the Son of God. It's to say it with your mouth and believe it in your heart, that you know he is the Son of God, that he died to save you. Will you if you lifted your hand, right now, just you can say it softly. Just say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you're the Son of God. I confess my sin to you. I ask you to forgive me. I haven't been perfect. I've made a lot of mistakes. But Lord, I trust in your grace to save and redeem and forgive my life today. Thank you, Lord, for being my Lord and Savior. Now, Father, would you do a mighty work in our hearts today, Lord. For every hand that went up today, God, would you just, would you just begin to minister, Lord. I pray, God, that you would let them know of how real you are by ministering to their point of need right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, whatever they've come in carrying, whatever they've come in holding on to, whatever from their past that they haven't been able to get over, God, I pray that you would target it now in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of God and you would go to work immediately letting them know that they truly are a new creation in Christ Jesus and the old has lost its power over them now in Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise, God, for what you're doing in this moment. We thank you, God, for your power, for, for your word. Lord.